And I just sat there like refreshing, just refreshing my emails. And then it came up and I lost 1500 quid because I threw a brand new MacBook across the restaurant and it smashed into pieces. <laughs> Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Simon Martin. Simon is the creator and head chef of Manor, which is Manchester's only restaurant to receive a Michelin star in four decades. No, you can't You can't open a restaurant and say we're going to get a Michelin star, because if it doesn't happen, then you, you're doomed. Most chefs do want a Michelin star. It's like an actor saying they don't want an Oscar. And yes, of course I wanted it. Due to earlier career hopes being derailed, Simon ended up on the road to becoming a chef almost by accident. However, his talent and perseverance saw him eventually working at the world-famous Noma restaurant in Copenhagen before moving back to the UK and opening his own coveted restaurant. I'd love to be that person again and to feel that passionately and about something. It genuinely felt like life or death. A chef isn't the most traditional founder we usually have on the podcast, but we found a lot of parallels between creating a restaurant and founding our own business. So this is Simon Martin. Enjoy. Simon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much for uh, having me. It's good to talk to you guys. So before we dive into Manor, can we? Can you tell us a little bit about your your life and career before you opened the restaurant and, and how you got into cooking? Yeah, so going that far back, I think I was uh, 16. And up until the point where I first stepped foot into a kitchen, I was a semi-pro motocross rider. And then I had a sort of a crippling knee injury where I couldn't really perform at my best anymore. So instead of being mediocre at it, I we made a decision basically with my dad and, and the team that I was riding for and said, you know, we're just going to end it here. And, and that's going to be it because nothing breaks my heart more than not sort of being able to reach my potential in something. So having like my knee uh, hold me back was... Not really an option. And then I, uh, I considered academia and that's definitely not for me. I can't stand sort of sitting in a classroom and being fed a curriculum. Um, I did psychology for a little bit, but then that lasted about two months. And then uh, I was basically, didn't really have a purpose in life. And my dad saw me watching a, a Jamie Oliver cooking program, who by the way, I'm not a fan of. <laughs> and uh he just, without even speaking to me, called up the nearest Michelin star restaurant in Chester called the Chester Grosvenor. And he, uh, he basically said, my, my lad wants to be a chef. And I didn't at all. I had no interest in cooking, but I went along with it because I always did what my dad told me to do. And I stepped foot in the kitchen. And I mean, I didn't even have like a practical trial or anything. The, the exec chef, Simon Radley, just sat me down in his office and was like really intense and just said, do you want a job or not? And I was like, yeah, okay. Um... So then I started the week later, I was paid £1.50 an hour and that still was terrible then as well. <laughs> um, and I was just making sandwiches for afternoon tea. It wasn't a good time. Um, it's a very old school kitchen, lots of like screaming, shouting, pans knocking about everywhere and in a basement. And I was just like, oh, this is awful. And I just sort of like had all the pride knocked out of me that I had from from you know, riding motorbikes on an international level. And... One of the chefs in, so it was a hotel with several restaurants, uh, but there's uh, one restaurant that had a Michelin star and one of the chefs saw that I wasn't really enjoying myself. And he came over to me and he said, do you want to come and work in the Michelin star restaurant tonight? And I was like, uh, at this point, yeah, I'll do anything because my dad will kill me if I quit. So uh, 
I uh, I spent a night there and everything changed. I sort of saw the how proud everybody was to to be doing that job and the organ organization, the discipline, but it wasn't like chaotic discipline. It was very focused. And yeah, I said, I want to do this now. So then I sort of carried on from there and it turned out I was pretty good at that sort of style of cooking. I couldn't cut a sandwich straight, but uh, I could put little pieces of crust and stuff on things. Um, and then it just sort of went from there. Uh, so after that, I worked in a bunch of places around the UK. It took me to Australia, took me to, uh, well, basically ending up in, in Denmark in a, a restaurant called Noma. We had a look at uh, into your background and you were considering joining the Marines as well before you got that knee injury. Um, and I'm just thinking in terms of the the level of discipline, in terms of the discipline organization that needs to happen, um, the fact that everything needs to be on point. A Michelin star restaurant, I can imagine, be is is quite an attractive opportunity to be able to, to get to work in that environment. Yeah. Um, and it was something that I think I was just conditioned to see as the way forward in life is having a, a role with discipline because I started riding bikes when I was eight and it was only like a year of it being purely fun before things got very serious. Um, I was homeschooled from the age of 13. I used to basically live at my coach's house for half the week and then on the weekends it was at the races. So I probably, I probably only like spend one, one day a week at home. Um, and it was super disciplined, super structured and you know, going back to with it being something that I've experienced since such a young age, it's kind of something that I need. So now, I mean, skipping ahead a few chapters, like now it's the, the biggest challenge is being self-disciplined and not having somebody else to, to sort of show me a direction and, and sort of pathfinding now. It's not why I went into cooking. It was, you know, like I said, it was completely random, but it's definitely why I stayed. What would you say are the core differences between your a kind of run-of-the-mill restaurant and one that is able to earn a, a Michelin star? A lot of things. You know, it's not just about, you know, the ethos and the focus and the, the discipline in the organization. It's about, you know, if somebody needs to be leading that has a genuine love for food and wants to provide an, an amazing guest experience as well, being a head chef and being a, a chef patron or a restaurant owner and chef owner is a very different thing because you have to look at so many different perspectives of, you know, the guests, the staff, the the critics, the the journalists, the, the people who aren't going to come to your restaurant but want to question you about it. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a lot of things. And I think the number one thing for any restaurant that's, that's going to set it apart is just having uh, an ultimate dedication into providing a, a fantastic experience for both their guests and their team. And when you were working at Noma in Copenhagen, what, what was the point where you felt, you know what, I want to sort of venture out and, and do this for myself? I was sort of forced into leaving because my girlfriend that I was with, I'd been with her for 10 years at the time and she didn't want to do long distance anymore. She was a nurse in, I say, I talk about her in a past tense because I'm not with her anymore. She's still alive. Um, right. <laughs> she's, uh, um, she, was, she was a nurse in Salford Royal in Manchester. And she said, yeah, you, you come home or you dumped, basically. And that's the only reason. I'm not from Manchester. I'm from Shropshire originally. But Manchester's always felt like the nearest sort of major city outside of Chester, which is not really a city, if you ask me. But um, yeah, and that's the only that's the only reason uh, we're here. And, and that's the only reason I left Noma is because for a girl. Fair enough. That's one of the only times we've heard that reason in terms of getting started in, in, on your own in business. Yeah. And sorry, going back to that, it, it was uh, the only reason... I went and decided to do it on my own is because I felt like, you know, I've worked at the 
four times best restaurant in the world now. I don't really want to work for anybody else. And that was it. I felt like I'd sort of had enough knowledge, at least of cooking. I thought I had knowledge of business, but we'll get into that, I suppose, later. And uh, and yeah, I was just like, you know what? It's time for me to open my own place. I've always tried to do things sort of ahead of my time. So I was 27 at the time. So when you moved, or at least when you when you decided you were going to open Manor, did you know... Did you know that's what it was going to be? Did you know where you were going to do it? How much stuff did you have planned when you first started to think you were going to open up your own restaurant? It was all pretty last minute, if I'm honest. Whilst I was at Noma, I didn't, I couldn't imagine a career. You know, I was going to retire with them. You know, I was, I was, I was imagining like doing something, or you know, if I did want to move out of Noma, I wouldn't have been in a restaurant. I would do something food related. There's, there's two other things I probably wanted wanted to do and that would have been either to work on um, meals for kids at school because our food was rubbish in school or the other thing I would do would be to uh, to sort of like go into like manufacturing of, of food or, or or sorry manufacturing and then the last one being teaching because I did do college before I went into this apprenticeship at the Chester Grosvenor and I left it because even without setting foot in a, in a proper kitchen before I knew this wasn't what the industry was about. And they tried to recreate it, but the college that I went to was still teaching ways to make sources the way that they were made 40 years ago. So the curriculum hasn't been updated for, for that long. And most people, when they, you know, they say I've come out, you know, most people like to think that once they've gone to catering college and they spent three years of their, of their life, that they should have the sort of the pick of the draw relatively and they should be able to walk into a mission style restaurant but it's absolutely not the case with the knowledge that they bring so that would that would be the last thing that i'd wanted to do and so go, going back to when you were first opening manor then um you said it was all done sort of pretty last minute obviously you'd worked in a restaurant with a michelin star before when you were opening manor was the plan when you knew that that was the thing you were going to do was the plan to aim to have a michelin star was that like a non-negotiable or was it just i just want to open a restaurant so there's a huge stigma behind restaurants that when they open, they say, we, we, we want to get a mission star. The general r- rule of thumb is when you open a new restaurant, whether you want one or not, which most people do, you don't talk about it because you're just going to set yourself up for failure if it doesn't happen. And you, we don't really have much to do with Michelin. They come in, they do their inspections. They're completely anonymous now. We ended up with our first inspection. One of the inspectors came back the next day and had a chat, but... They don't, I've heard they don't do that anymore. Um, so they're very aloof and they love restaurants and they love chefs. I did get the chance to spend a week with, um, with them in Hungary and obviously use the opportunity to give them a good grilling because we don't get that opportunity very often. And, you know, their heart's in a really good place, but they're just due to the, uh, the makeup of the guide and the fact that it's anonymous and it's, they don't have any outside influence then they obviously can't have close relationships with us, the chefs. But no, you can't you can't open a restaurant and say we're gonna get a mission star because if it doesn't happen, then you you're doomed. You know, no everyone's just gonna see you as a failure. Of course, like I said, most chefs do want a mission star. It's like an actor saying they don't want an Oscar. Um and yes, of course I wanted it. But I would never say that to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I would never say that to anybody. But um yeah, I, I knew what it what I, what I wanted it to look like and the sort of food that we wanted to do and well, kind of. I I knew the the format of the menu that I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted it to be high end, but not pompous. Still very high quality, but without the sir and the madams and the waiters in suits because 
it doesn't add anything to the food. And I think these days people just see through it. You know, most people in the hospitality industry are lower to middle class. So some guy coming over, putting on an accent and acting as if he's, uh, you know, whatever, then it just doesn't make any sense. And I want people to be real because the, the personalities of the team are what makes an experience for guests. Um, so you go into these restaurants and they're just very sterile. It's for me, it just doesn't make sense anymore. But also restaurants are just supposed to be fun. You know, it's for most people, a weekend occasion, you know, they've had a hard week at work. They don't want to go and sit in a sterile environment where they have to keep their buddies back straight and use their best manners and all this sort of thing. I'm like, you're going to go back to work the next week feeling like you haven't had a chance to relax. So, you know, it needs to mean people are supposed to laugh at the top of their lungs and listen to music and get a bit drunk and all this sort of thing, you know, it's, and we're there to facilitate that. A refreshing way to look at it. When you were, again, when you were opening the business, um, how confident were you in your ability to operate the, we'll call them the business side of things, but how confident were you specifically in finding staff and, the, and getting the right people in as well as um, what it took to be able to, pull a, a restaurant together did you need to find funding did you know where to get all the equipment from how confident were you in getting things off the ground I think I was just I was confident but it didn't come from a place of experience obviously it's just I think I was just um I had a red mist over me and I said you know I'm, I'm gonna do this no matter what it's gonna you know whatever it takes if I don't know something I'll teach myself I'll find avenues I'll I'll do you know I'll do anything to to make it happen and, and I did I think it was just blind determination which made it work and what, what helped us get the restaurant off the ground you know, in terms of staffing. So there was a very crucial moment for the restaurant and that's when there was a guy who had a restaurant on Great Anko Street, which is like a one minute walk away from where the restaurant is now. And I was trying to piece together, the, the you know, I was trying to piece a restaurant together. The first thing I did was go and register the business on Company's House. So I had an official business. And then the next thing I did was create a Facebook page because back then Facebook was relevant. Um, <laughs> created a fake Facebook page and a logo on, I taught myself how to use Adobe Illustrator, um, created a logo and then um, uploaded it as our profile picture and said, you know, upcoming restaurant in Manchester. And it was all just a bit acting as though it was going to happen when <laughs> absolutely nothing was in, in, in the works yet. And then I thought, right, well, the next step, I'm, I'm going to use the premises, which, you know, to me, that was the only way to a restaurant. Now there's plenty of other avenues by doing pop-ups and things like that. But I contacted the guy who had this restaurant on Great Ancoat Street, who was, a, who was a guest at Noma, who I, I gave a tour to. And I thought, well, he's got a restaurant in Manchester. I'm going to contact him and ask how you go about getting business premises. I was on right move. I was like, oh, it, yeah, is that, why is there no commercial properties on it? Um, <laughs> and then without giving me any sort of real advice, he basically put on his Twitter page, which had a tiny following, like four or 5,000 followers on Twitter. He said he was, you know, my, my friend from Noma is about to open a restaurant. And then the next thing, Manchester Evening News got in touch and I did an interview over the phone and it went out 20 minutes after the interview. And then it was like a real thing then. I'd just come back from Copenhagen and I was living with my parents and I remember running into the lounge I told my parents I was going to do this thing and they were like, yeah, okay, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I remember running into the lounge and watching TV and I was like, no, it's happening. It's actually happening. It has to happen now because Manchester Evening News have written about it. They've covered it now. Yeah. Hands are tied. And I was sort of going on like <laughs> angelinvestor.com and things like that, trying to find trying to find somebody to fund it purely 
my only merit was my career my, so far, you know, my CV and I wanted somebody to sort of take a leap of faith or, or whatever. And then uh, I was staying at my girlfriend's house in Chalton and I woke up one morning to a message from a guy called Joel Adams from uh, Lyft Financial in Altrincham. And he sent me a LinkedIn message saying, I've heard you're opening a restaurant. Do you mind meeting up? And very vaguely just said, I just want to tell you how I think a lot of restaurants go wrong in Manchester. And I thought that's a bit strange. This guy's either a lunatic or he wants to actually get involved. And I thought it was the latter. So I went and met him in a pub in Altrincham and we had a chat and then it was like, okay, so make a business plan. So I did, I used LivePlan, which I think is a fantastic software and then started to look for premises. Again, I was approached by a brand new development in Ancoats from a company called Manchester Life who had this commercial unit available. And they said, you know, do you want to come and see it? And I was like, yes. So then the next step was bringing Joel to come and see it. After he came and saw the premises, he was like, yeah, I'm in, let's do it. You don't earn a lot of money as a chef and you definitely don't have any savings. So I couldn't afford to do it on my own. We started off with 150K and the rest of the restaurant was made up by asset finance, which left us with 35,000 pound a month to, to pay. I, looking back now, I don't know how we paid it, but it's paid off now. We own, we own the restaurant now. It's nice. And what was the opening night like? And from that point, what was the custom like? Did you do marketing to get customers through the door or how did, how did you actually get, get it running and get people coming in? So it's all word of mouth. Um, to this day, we've never spent a penny on advertising. So yeah, people were talking about it. Manchester at the time had pretty much no real food community. There was, there was not, not, there wasn't a lot going on in Manchester. Um, so it's not like if we went to London and it's such a saturated market, you know, every new opening is, is documented here. We were fully booked for like for the first three weeks, uh, just from people wanting to sort of catch on to the back of the hype. We documented our sort of journey and it was all about like getting people to get on board with this journey that we were on. And, um, you know, we started to gain followers and I, fucking, I remember celebrating when we had a thousand followers on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, opening night was terrifying. Uh, we were fully booked. Back then we did 32 covers. And we, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for us it was. And we do 24 now, we've reduced it. And yeah, it was just, it actually went very well. We did like three test services with like just friends and family, people who weren't going to like take to the internet and, and tell everyone how shit we were. It was just incredibly high emotions. I've, I'd love to be that person again and to feel that passionately and about something. It, it genuinely felt like life or death. Like I was having an existential crisis at times about the restaurant and failure just wasn't an option. There was so much hype around the restaurant before we opened that we, we really needed to hit the ground running. And I was so nervous. I remember the first sort of team briefing that we had, I could hear this, this, this shake in my voice because I was just terrified of it going wrong. And I wanted these people to really be on board and to see my vision and, and to understand how important this thing was to me. From since then, it's all sort of like died down a little bit as, as things settle. You couldn't live a life as as amped up as I was back then, but uh, I do think back very fondly to to seeing something with with so much importance. Did you and now do you um, run the business side of the restaurant? So in the beginning, I did absolutely everything: payroll, accounts. I did P and Ls. 
I did the till, I did all the orders. And this is off on the side of training a team every single day, sort of 14 hours a day. I don't actually know how I had time to do any of this. I did everything. There was no like business management whatsoever other than what was happening for me. But I don't regret that because I'll never ask somebody to do something unless I'll, I'm willing and able to do it myself. So I'm glad that I did all that. I mean, I probably did only did payroll like three times, but <laughs> I did it. <laughs> and it, and it, it was fine. Everyone got paid. Um, now, no. Now, now the, the business has branched into, into quite a few hand, employees' hands. Was it hard to find people that you could trust for those roles? Yeah. Yeah, really. Cause I, hadn't, I hadn't worked with anybody that I'd, uh, I opened the restaurant with. So there were two people, one person I'd worked with and one person I knew. So the person who, that I knew who came in as the restaurant manager was the guy who had this restaurant on Great Ancoats who ended up, he was already closing his restaurant and he ended up coming to be the restaurant manager. And then there was another guy who I used to work under at a place called Gilpin Lodge who was the sous chef there and he came to be the head chef at Manor when we opened. Um, they both moved on pretty quickly. I think it was just like a bit of a pipe dream for them where, I mean, it was super hard. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to open any restaurant, never mind one as ambitious as Manor was or is. Everybody else in the team I'd never, I'd never met before in my life. They just, I used to interview them in Ancoats Coffee around the corner. I'd come to Manchester. I was in, I was living with my parents in Utoxeter at the time. So I used to drive uh, up to Manchester pretty much every day, interview people there and then just sort of get a feel for, for them. And I'm the sort of person who trusts people quite blindly. So there were a few occasions where, you know, there's been, you know, in, in the early days anyway, there was some theft and there was some, um, you know, there were people that just sort of like walked out without saying anything, like didn't give you a notice and like left you in the shit. So yeah, without without building these relationships with people over the over a stable and progressive successful re- restaurant, it is difficult because you, you they're relying solely on you and you know what you say to them and the, the little successes that you have along the way and the guest feedback, which you know for most people they're they're all very fleeting things. And they, they only last as long as they continue. So if, if one of those points stops, then they lose faith and then they end up moving on. Whereas if you've already got like this history of success and like you're stable and you have this infrastructure that people can work within and work and there's, you know, there's, there's growth in a restaurant because it's already been enabled and there's, there's, there's infrastructure essentially in the restaurant, which no restaurant which opens that isn't coming from a, an existing company of other restaurants has, they won't, there's no way you have that. You can't, I don't know, I couldn't anyway, you'd have to be an extremely clever and savvy person to set that infra- infrastructure up before you even open the restaurant in the first place. So it takes time to be able to get people to trust you as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, employment is a two-way street. You know, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-way deal. You know, money's not enough. You know, just simply a paycheck is not enough for for people in this sector of the industry anyway. Because why would they why would they work there if they didn't want if they weren't ambitious and they didn't want uh, more from their career than than just a paycheck? So, you know, they're coming to work from you and they want to learn and they want they want career development. They want a lovely working culture. They want the best equipment. 
they want, you know, they want job satisfaction every single day. It's not about, you know, going and working in an office and getting a bonus once a year or, you know, your line manager telling you you did a good job on a project once every six weeks. People want satisfaction every single day. So the the team management aspect of things is, is huge. You mentioned that you're now taking a new direction that is almost quite anti-chef or anti-restaurant. Would you be able to go into more detail around what you mean by that? Like your new focus is on tech, for example. Yeah. So we've always had a wreath in the restaurant, like something you'd see in your nan's house. It's like a, it's a, it's a bunch of like oats tied up and they always, the, the tips of the oats are supposed to stick up. One day, very, very early on, I just went up to it and I turned it around. And I thought, I thought this looks better upside down. And everyone used to be like, you read upside down. I was like, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) And it was then that I realized that I wanted to just do the opposite of what everything, everyone else was doing. And that would have several benefits. First of all, mainly it would make us unique. Second of all, it would make us forced to pioneer and it would it would constantly put pressure on ourselves if we were doing the opposite of what everybody else was doing then we would always have this pressure to succeed because we were we were finding our own way and you know a guest can go to 10 michelin star restaurants and they all do the same thing like honestly they all do the same thing they come to manor and we're doing something else and they can one of two things are going to happen number one they say this is amazing. I've not been to a Michelin star restaurant like this before. It's so different. The other thing that can happen would be like, I've been to 10 Michelin star restaurants before here and you're not doing it right. So whatever you do that's different has to be amazing and it has to be better. And without that sort of pressure that I put on myself, I, firstly, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. And secondly, the restaurant wouldn't be different and that would kill me. It has to be different. We have to be doing something that nobody else is doing because that's what my drive is. And, you know, going back to what we spoke earlier, like I, I want to be at the top always. And we can't be at the top if we're just doing what everyone else is doing. You know, if you put a bunch of, okay, here's an analogy. You put five sprinters on a, on the, on the start of a, a circuit, a running circuit, and you send them off. And one of them's going to win, probably marginally. It doesn't really matter. Like you won by a little bit and you all tried really, really hard to be the best out of those five sprinters. And it like, it was so much turmoil in order to be the best because you're all doing the same thing. Put a cyclist on the end. Who's going to win? You know, <laughs> just do something different. And it's a lot easier to be a success. It's, it's nice to hear you speak quite passionately about that. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but have you seen the, the Truffle Hunter? with Nicolas Cage. No. No. <laughs> then I'll probably skip over it, but there's basically this scene. <laughs> it's a really weird film about a guy that's a bit of a recluse that lives in a forest with a truffle pig and it's essentially taken with a pig. <laughs> and uh, people come and steal his pig. And then you find out through the film that he used to be this really really well-known chef. And as he's going to figure out who's uh stolen his pig because it's like a very well-renowned truffle hunter and truffles like gold dust in in this film he goes and visits someone who is uh, an ex sous chef of his i believe and he basically (laughs) 
forces him to have a meltdown when he's questioning him about where his pig is because he's opened a restaurant that he doesn't necessarily believe in and he's just doing exactly what everyone else is doing because he believes it's just what will do well in the area rather than what is his dream. And he's making like deconstructed um, versions of like normal dishes and things yeah. like this. And uh, basically gets this guy to have a meltdown because <laughs> he's just not followed his passion. But it sounds like you're very focused on bringing your your passion to life and trying to do what you believe is right rather than just making things that you think customers are, are going to specifically want. You're making things that come from you, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, leading on to you know the original question of like, what are we doing? And like, yes, we've just had a rebrand. And I think identity is something that a lot of chefs just struggle with in general because it's hard to be inspired and inspiration doesn't come from nowhere. It's an evolution. That's how, you know, human race, the human race wouldn't be here today if we didn't take inspiration from others. And, you know, there's no, there's no harm in sort of taking inspiration from other places, but then plagiarism is something that's rife in the industry. And it is difficult to sort of have your own identity because people constantly get um, accused of plagiarizing each other. So identity is something that I see as like very, very, very important in this industry because especially for a chef, you're not really going to feel as though you're doing your own life's work unless you have your own identity. So what we've done with this rebrand is, you know, like I was talking earlier, we've kind of gone anti-chef, we've gone anti-restaurant. Our new website isn't really a restaurant website. It's not even really a website. It's just, it's just, it's a bunch of images and, and links to, where we want you to go to either book a reservation or find out a bit more about us. So the the goal this year is to really just, again, like I was saying before, just sort of flip things on their head. And we don't want to take inspiration from the industry because that will end, you know, we'll end up being like everyone else eventually, or at least in some, some regards. So I started to look at, I don't think any restaurant in the world, nobody looks at them and goes, that's a fantastic company. That's an amazing company. It's not like people look at it like they look at Google or Apple or SpaceX or, you know, places like that. And I was just kind of like, well, I'm not going to ask my chef mates what software they use to project manage or to keep everyone online and in sync with each other and things like that. I mean, my girlfriend works with BuzzFeed, which I think is a fantastic company. So a lot of the the things that we use is, is what they're using. And then we'll use like project management tools. We won't just have to have like mindless chats so that we can be working uh, in a better manner, even like the reservation system we use, which is quite popular, but it's it's tech technologically it's the most advanced, and it just provides you with so many so much more um, scope to customize and to to really like control your restaurant. Um, we've got plans in the future to make to be paperless entirely. We don't want any paper in the restaurant. Everything should be on a cloud where everyone can see whatever they need to see at any point in the in time. The fact that we still use like tickets for orders in restaurants is crazy to me like when when things change and then by the end of the night you've just got a piece of paper with a load of scribbles on it and it's and you can't see it it doesn't get logged you know there's no you can't go back and do a data anal analysis and see what's working well what's not working you can't see the times in between people's courses how quickly are people eating do we need to add an extra course do we need to make the course bigger so that they're spending more time on it so that they're not you know there's so many examples of how tech can improve a restaurant and, you know, information and data are invaluable really. And what you can do with those things is, 
is crazy when you think about it compared to a restaurant 10 years ago. But tools are starting to come out for restaurants, uh, specifically aimed towards, marketed towards restaurants. But then it's kind of like when gaming headphones came out. Good headphones existed for years before that, but gamers weren't using them. It's only until you started putting bloody like lights and like aggressive styling on them and stuff that people started buying them, but they existed before. And it's the same with tech for the food industry. It already exists. It's not marketed to, towards us, so we don't see it. We don't really want to act or behave as a restaurant anymore. And we've, we've purposely made as much as we can um, in the rebranding anti-restaurant. We're, we're not going to a company for the, for, you know, for the chef's uniforms. We're not going to like a chef white's company. We're going to a designer who can design something bespoke and actually works for, for a restaurant. We don't need flame retardant chef whites anymore because there's no flames in any kitchens. Everything's induction. The only flames are coming from a barbecue, really, and it's not a lot. So just to me, it just doesn't make sense anymore to, to treat a restaurant like a restaurant. We might as well just put ourselves on the same level as the best companies in the world and, and behave like, or at least take inspiration for them from them now. And in terms of defining moments for you and the company, I can imagine receiving a Michelin star was one, but is there... Are there any big defining moments for you um, that you can remember that you think if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be where I am today? We waited so long for a national review. And then there was a restaurant up the road who'd been open two weeks, literally like a one minute walk away. Two weeks, they got like a national review and we waited eight months for hours. And it came in, we got like a 10 out of 10 from Marina Glocklin in The Guardian. And that was monumental. But up until that point, we needed continual investment in order to carry on what we were doing. We could have changed, and but I'm just stubborn. And I was I was like, well, this is, it's, yeah. Either works or it doesn't, and that's it. Obviously, yeah, the mission star was monumental. But even, you know, going back to the Marina review was huge. That I was like, finally, people are going to pay attention to us now. I mean, reservations were pretty much impossible to get after that review. And then a month later, we got the star. So it was kind of like, it all happened at once. The restaurant manager at the time nearly had a mental breakdown because the phone wouldn't stop ringing. People were coming into the restaurant for up to about a year and a half, actually, and complaining whilst we were in service, like walking in the door, coming up to the front. Some of just like, they'd go into the restaurant, they were, they were furious, they were trying to find someone to complain that they couldn't get a reservation. And without, <laughs> and without saying it, I was kind of thinking, well, fucking all these people are here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it was very difficult, but there was nothing we could do. We weren't going to like put more tables in because we had the success that we had because of what we'd already been doing. And this is something that a lot of people forget about awards and mission stars and, you know, reviews is that, well, not maybe not reviews, but like awards, you're, you're getting that award based on what you did last year. So it's not, it's not what you're doing that year. So if we're getting amazing awards, then we should be better than what, we receive then. What actually happens when you get a Michelin star? Because a lot of people know that restaurants can receive one, but what what actually happens? Does, does something turn up in the post? Do you just see it? Do you get an email? I mean, it, up until the point where we got ours, it had been different every year. Sometimes it was a phone call. I think one year it was a message on Twitter. The year that we, we got ours, I got a email, I think on the Friday, and then the, the ceremony was on the Monday. I mean, we were obviously aware that we were on their radar because following our first inspection, the one of the inspectors came in the next day and I had about an hour long chat with him, which kind of felt like an interview, if I'm honest. And he wanted to like look around and 
and all that sort of thing. And it was very good. It was very positive. He asked me, you know, if you can ask me and I'll give you the opportunity, you can ask me anything you want. And I just sort of choked and then he left and I was like, I had a million questions for him. But then that was it. And I thought, well, I've got friends from already starred restaurant, a couple in particular who were very, very um, good with me and were very guiding, put my mind at ease uh, a lot of the time. And I sort of asked them what the process was and he was, you know, they were like, well, there's going to be a few more inspections. So we were, we were expecting more inspections. And then that was it. And it was kind of like, well, I know we're on their radar, but I felt like I've got an opportunity to get one. If I don't get it, it's because I've failed and I've, I've done something wrong. And the last week, and then I was told that it will be the last week before the guide comes out. And they'd announced a date. So we knew when the date was, we knew when the ceremony was going to be. And they were like, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to get an email. And one of my guidance chefs said to me that, you know, it's going to be this week. If you're going to get an email, it's going to be this week. And I was like, right, okay. So Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they all go by. I'm like not able to work genuinely. Like I could, I couldn't work. I was just in bits and it, when it got to Thursday I was like right it's not happening I like started to started to accept that it's not going to happen I was told Friday would if it's going to happen if Friday would be the last day so I went into the restaurant and I took my laptop and I went and sat on table two which is the furthest table away from anyone in the restaurant be it the kitchen or the front of house staff and I just sat there like refreshing just refreshing my emails and then it came up and I lost 1500 quid because I threw a brand new MacBook across the restaurant and it smashed into pieces. <laughs> um, my legs stopped. Were people in there? Oh yeah, the, the whole team was there. No, no, no guests, no guests. No, <laughs> no guests. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I stood up and I, I was, I stood up to go and walk over to the kitchen and, and, you know, tell everyone and hug and congratulate them. And, and my legs wouldn't work. So I was like, you know, if you just had like a really intense leg workout or, <laughs> and your legs don't, you know, they're all just shaking and you, you struggled to put one foot in front of the other. It was like that. My legs stopped working. I had to sit on a bench and, oh, it was crazy. That was such an emotional time. And, you know, my girlfriend at the time, like, suffered because I was 16 hours a day in the restaurant. And when I wasn't there, I was on my computer at home working on the restaurant. And so, like, being able to tell her that we'd got the star was huge. And it was just such a weight off our shoulders, my shoulders and my apartment's shoulders. And the whole team as well, because they knew how much, you know, it was going to be monumental for us. You know, like you said before, we never really spoke about it. We never said to anybody, like, we want him outside of the restaurant, that we want a mission star. And yet, because there'd been several restaurants in Manchester who had come and tried and failed, I didn't want to be just another one of them. And I think that's what would have happened. So getting the star was really, really crucial to, to the business and whether it would last. If someone listening to this is is someone who's wanting to open a restaurant that's going to be worthy of a Michelin star, other than obviously keep it to themselves and don't tell anyone, what advice would you have for them? I don't don't think about getting a star. Don't do it for Michelin. Do it do it for your guests. You know, it needs to be you need to first of all be cooking food that you can identify with, which your team can identify with. You need to be cooking what you love to eat. You need to be, you know, never put never put an ingredient on the menu that you don't want to eat. I think a lot of chefs do that because it's either trendy or, you know, it's what they think guests want. But even if a guest really, really likes quinoa, don't fucking cook it for them if you don't like it because it's going to be shit. You can't cook what you don't like to eat well. 
you might be able to do it. You might just be able to follow a recipe or whatever. But if, if your heart's not in it, it's not gonna it's not gonna come out uh, well on a plate. The second thing I'd say would just to be like take care of yourself. And people get into this rabbit hole where they think that sacrifice equals success, and it doesn't necessarily. I used to tell myself I'm fine on four hours sleep a night. I, I'm lucky enough to get six or seven now, and I feel a hell of a lot better for it, and I can do my job better. I can get a lot more done in much less time if I just sleep better. Arguably, you're losing that time to sleep, but I feel better doing my job. And even if it just means that you feel better, and you are able to make better decisions when you've had more sleep. There is very much this culture in entrepreneurship that says when you're sleeping, somebody else is working or, you know, you've got to work hard, you've got to kill yourself, you've got to sacrifice everything. It, what, at what point do you, do you relax? Because if that's the what works for you, it's very easy to tell yourself that that's the only thing that's going to work. And people might, because I was like that, 100%. I, I would sleep two, three hours a night in the first year of, of MANA. But not everybody gets to a point where they go, hold on a minute. There might be, a, there must be an easier way because I'm not going to, I'm not going to last like this. That's definitely advice that I feel like can be broadened out to not just people that are looking to open their own restaurants, but any founder that is starting any form of business. No, and I was going to say, is there a, a kind of lesson in your life that you have pinpointed in terms of a biggest learning for yourself that you would want to pass on to whether it was someone that was wanting to start their own business or their own restaurant? You've given a lot of advice there already, but if there's one in particular that you feel like was a, a big learning. Um, for me, kind of tying into the last question a little bit as well, is that I was working so much and working so hard that the restaurant became me and me alone. And the team felt, and I felt that the place couldn't function without me. And then uh, my girlfriend that we, you know, the, the girl that I was with, left me because I was spending too much time at the restaurant. And that's when it sort of made me think, I know it's time to make a change. Um, I'm not going to be able to have a relationship with anybody if, if this is the case. And so I took a step back and I, you know, I felt like I had a fantastic team. I had a fantastic head chef who at the time I didn't trust to, <laughs> to run the restaurant, but I had to sort of take that leap. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come in for a week and let's see what happens because this is, you know, it's turned out to be really important for me to, to I, I, I'm not here all the time. And he did an amazing job and all the feedback was great. And it was a, it was a real like realization moment that the restaurant doesn't revolve around me. It's everybody that's there. And it's very easy once, you know, when, when you do all that work and you sacrifice so much and you've never not been there, then you do. I think it's quite natural to, to tell yourself that the place can't function without you. And then you take yourself out and everybody steps up and they they learn more, they grow. I think it's really just about creating an environment where people are allowed to facilitate on their own and not always by what you tell them. You know, they don't people don't always need guidance. You know, people can, you know, everybody's an individual with a very, you know, with a specific set of skills that aren't going to come out if you're always telling them how you want things to be done. Maybe something's better better if you just let them crack on and just go for it. And that's what happened. I sort of, I, I had to take a step back. So I did and the restaurant flourished and the people flourished and they developed this really positive culture between them. And they were all very proud and they felt responsible for, for the restaurant. 
and then given given even more time on their own, they started to treat my business like their own. And that's, if you get a member of staff like that, then you're winning. This last question is more around the people um, in your life who have influenced your business um, or your personal life. Who's in your little black book? Who is it that has been or has made a, a really big impact in your in your career? I mean, currently and ongoing, like definitely Joel, my business partner. I really, really look up to him and respect him for everything that he's done in business. He's, he's very much a self-made success. Nothing was handed to him on, his, on a plate. In terms of, obviously, my dad, my dad passed away a few years ago, and that was huge. Like we, we, I won. We found we we won the star, and then like four days later, my dad passed away. So that was kind of like put a bit of a downer on, on uh, on getting the star. But I was glad that he was around to see me get it. Um, he was monumental, or very instrumental in who I am today because I spent so much time with him during the motocross days. He was always, he sort of taught me that, you know, performance is really, really important. And the only thing that's ever really going to stop you wanting to perform at a certain level is if you lose interest in something. So I think keeping, keeping yourself interested in, in things is, is really important. Even today with, with cooking, I mean, it's easy for me to lose interest in in uh, in the menu, for instance, and then not when you don't receive more in, inspiration from somewhere else because you know creativity can't be forced; it has to come as and when. But then you can sort of like push creativity. You can do things in order to to enable your mind to be more creative, and that normally comes through experience. So you have to make all these little efforts to like keep you interested in things because you you're not going to be good at something you're not interested in. Um. But I think sounds cliche, but he taught me like to never really to never give up. I'm un, I'm unable to give up um, with things, and I think without him, I wouldn't have been able to uh, to develop that sort of that mindset. I bought some electric curtain rails three weeks ago, and I'm very heavy-handed, so <laughs> one of the rails got bent. So I took a hammer and just started smashing it to try and get it straight. It was absolutely unusable. Unusable. <laughs> I, I just paid. I just paid two hundred and sixty quid for these electric curtain rails that my partner really wanted, and I was put. I was trying to put these rails up for, uh, I reckon, fourteen hours, just but not even making any progress. I just, I just kept trying to put these rails up. I was like, it won't work. And eventually, she had to come over to me, and she was just like, Simon, we need to order some more. And they're going to come tomorrow, and you're going to put be able to put the rails up. And I was like, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was absolutely gutted that I didn't even though I mean deep down I knew they were fucked but I just uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was just determined to make them work I can definitely resonate with the uh, particularly with home DIY the yeah. idea like anything that you tried to I remember having a very sim similar situation just trying to tile my own backsplash having absolutely no experience and uh, it's a mess but it works so um I can resonate with the determination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, I think it's, it's having the mindset that if it's possible, I can do it one way or another. You know, you just teach yourself how to do something or I genuinely believe in the law of attraction. And I think that if you want something enough, you'll get it. But in terms of other sort of instrumental people, I'm sure there's people that I'm missing that I, I'll feel really badly about, um, not mentioning later, but 
I think some of the chefs that I've worked for and you know, Renee was obviously a big one from Noma, just seeing, you know, he's somebody who's just incredibly driven and very passionate and, you know, will do anything in order to achieve something, you know, just off the back of that subject and just thinks very outside the box and sort of gets rid of the bullshit and the things that you don't need in a restaurant and the things that the guests don't really care about, but they've always just been part of quote unquote fine dining. I hate the term. It doesn't really mean anything, but you know, that sector of restaurants and he was always somebody who just goes, we don't need that. Um, and like getting things out of the way. Um, but yeah, I think those three people. I think that's a really good place to to leave the podcast. And uh, I wanted to thank you so much for your time in coming on. I think there's a lot of really good advice in there for the listeners, whether they are uh, aspiring entrepreneurs or restaurant owners, uh, content in there for them. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps. 